world of horror podcast. You're invited to my party, where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. We have painted a bloody picture, but it is only a small part of what actually takes place. journey into a world where nightmare becomes reality. Hey Dave. What's up Andy? Not much, it's that it's that starting to be that Christmas time uh that time of year where you know, all of us horror podcasts are talking about some Christmas horror movies. Yeah, man. You know what Christmas time makes me think of is spending time with family. Oh, yeah, that's that's always fun. But you know what's even more fun is dysfunctional families. Hey, Andy, what yeah. horror movie has our favorite dysfunctional family? Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. Oh, I know. How about Amityville to the Possession? That probably has to go at the top of the list of dysfunctional families, of you know, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, man, this is a movie that offers every single thing a horror movie person can love. If you like so bad, it's good type of horror movies or anything like me, nostalgia. Yeah, this one, like, I don't know, like, I, th- I think it's pretty good at, you know, uh, on its own. Um, I think it's just as good as the first Amityville horror, really, you know, in my opinion. Um, I think after this, definitely the sequels kind of like fall off a little bit in quality. Um, three's okay, but I think definitely after three, it's kind of they're you know not as good. I don't know, but it's one of those franchises where there's like twenty sequels, and I know Dave, you probably have seen them all, right? <laughs> well, even I have a limit where I do have to stop, but this is definitely one of my favorite horror uh, franchise to go back and rewatch. Everybody knows me that I'm a big sequel fan anyway, so where I won't necessarily stand with you and say they fall off here, I will say that, um, in my personal opinion, Amityville 2 may not be as successful or as good of a movie as the original Amityville Horror, but I do prefer it over the original, just like you. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, depending on the day, like, my opinion might change, so... I really feel like as far as ranking like one and two are just right at the top. Yeah. You know, talk about the movie. Um, it was directed by an Italian director and he had a translator. <laughs> oh, did he? Okay. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. There was a lot of, uh, back and forth on set and he had to have a translator there because half the time people didn't know what was going on. Oh, wow. That's crazy. It didn't seem like it affected the movie at all. Well, I think what happens, and obviously I wasn't there to to quote this, but that really leaves it up to your actors to really take it upon themselves to become the characters and do the best job that they can, which they would feel that the director would kind of guide them to do. And so that's one thing I have to say about this movie is nobody – I don't feel like anybody's like phoning it in. Like you can love the character or you could hate the character, but you're hating them for the right reason. And I feel like all the way from the smallest to the biggest character in this movie, everybody just brings it, dude. Like it, this movie definitely, like you said, it stands on its own. It definitely tries to. Oh yeah. The acting is top notch in this, in this movie for sure. And I was looking to see what else the uh, director did. Maybe I figured maybe do some like giallos or something like that. But the only other horror thing he's done is a movie called the witch from 1966. So that, you know, uh, I did notice that, you know, in the opening credits, we get that really cool shot where it's just like the one shot of moving past the for sale sign. And we're like focusing in on the Amityville house. I think it's a really cool. And the the music there is really good by uh, the composer Lalo Schifrin, I think is his name. And he's done some other uh, work on some other movies. Uh, okay, so he did the original Amityville horror as well. And he also did the the score for the Manitou, which is another late seventies horror movie that I think is pretty cool. Um, he did the score for Day of the Animals. Oh, he also uh, did some work on Tales of Halloween uh, for the score, or he he scored the theme music for that. So that's kind of cool. a modern one. Yeah. So he definitely has some some credit, you know, for horror movies there. Um, and I also noticed that the uh, uh, the screenplay was written by a familiar name. 
did you notice that? Oh, you know I noticed that, man. <laughs> Can I just say out there, I think we've said it before, but this is probably one of our favorite people in the world, at least in the world of horror. Oh, yeah, definitely. Tommy Lee Wallace. Yeah. Oh, love him. And it shows, man. Like, he's such a unique writer. Like, the, when I think of Tommy Lee Wallace, I think of somebody that's not afraid to take risks. And also, he doesn't seem intimidated to be a follow-up guy. Like, he's his own person, and it, his glory does shine. Like, a lot of people forget that. I mean, I don't know. Would would you say that his, his biggest thing is Halloween 3? Yeah, probably that. Or... Um, the miniseries. Right, and I feel like a lot of people forget that he directed that. Most people, when they think of the It miniseries, it's like, oh, that's a Stephen King thing. Like, well, yes, it's a Stephen King story, but Tommy Lee Wallace directed both parts, you know, one and two of it. And I even still, to this day, stand by that movie, dude. I absolutely unabashedly love that film, both parts of it. Yeah, no, it's good. It's great. It's definitely a classic. I mean, it's... And for me, there's, like, so much nostalgia wrapped up with that one, too, because, you know, I was you know, a kid, you know, in the early nineties. And, uh, and, you know, so it is, for me, it's one of those kind of forbidden, uh, forbidden things, you know, cause I wasn't really allowed to watch it, but I remember like sneaking, you know, turning on the TV real quiet. So my parents could hear and like, you know, watching part of it or something. Um, so that, so, you know, always brings back memories. Um, and also kind of want to give credit to Tom Lee Wallace for Fright Night part two as well. Yes. Cause I, I really like that movie. I know it's not, it's probably not technically a great movie, but, um, I, I really enjoy that one. Yeah, man. Friday part two is awesome. It's again, it just kind of, his resume just shows, uh, he takes risks, but his movies for the most part, they just appear to be fun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that this movie, Amityville two, it definitely has, to me, it has the same feel as the first movie. And I think that really, um, says something about the direction really. I mean, even though there, cause there's a different director, uh, Stuart Rosenberg directed the first one. So I think that really says something about this, the Italian director. He has some skill in directing because he's able to give it that same feel as the original. And then the, you know, the third one doesn't really have the same feel. You know, that's kind of where it changes. Well, I think once we start hitting those, those later sequels, like three and four, everything shifts into that 90, that late eighties groove. Um, I mean, even oh, the fourth yeah. one is a made-for-TV movie, so there's definitely a production value switch and everything. But craziest thing about this movie, did you read? I'm sure you did. That um, a lot of it was filmed in Mexico City. You know, I noticed that in the, in the end credits, I noticed Mexico, and I was like, "What was filmed in Mexico?" Like, I do you know what was filmed in Mexico? Yeah, all the interior shots, like so the house itself, like the exterior shots, were the same one uh, over in New Jersey that they used. They didn't obviously use the real Amityville house. They're not allowed on the property. Um, but they use the same exterior shots in Jersey. But then everything that's inside the house was filmed like in the biggest studio lots that they have in Mexico. It's like where they make movies there all the time. They use the best, the cream of the crop there. And so um, – and I would imagine there's probably some connections there with that director too. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Um so that's interesting. I mean, so they did a really good job of matching up the house, like the interior of the house, because I didn't even notice a difference. I I would have assumed that they filmed on the same set, but I'm, right. I'm sure that. But yeah, so that's really cool. Well, I think, too, uh, there's just when you're going into like Amityville 2, there's so much expectation because people love the original. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if that dedication was just brought forth someone's like hey we need to make this look just like the first one because people are going to notice yeah for sure yeah like you said there's always that that pressure uh when you're making a sequel you don't want to hit that sophomore slump you know (laughs) right but then again you also have that getaway card it's like oh well it's a sequel what are people expecting (laughs) yeah that's true coming straight to vhs or and even with this being a sequel, the acting is still solid, like we said before. And I, you know, I think the most recognizable face for me, at least, is Burt Young. He plays the dad, and he does a really good job of just being that asshole. You know, the that the dad that you know, yeah, you know, behind closed doors, he probably beats his kids or whatever. You know, it's just like, oh man, <laughs> that definitely shows. And uh, uh, this isn't yeah. his first horror movie though. Like he was in some early on movies like Carnival of Blood and Blood Beach and stuff. But oh, yeah, wow. I think everybody, yeah, everybody recognizes him from Rocky. Yeah, exactly. That's that's why I recognize him from. I remember he's like the the uncle or yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know what's really crazy, and I'm sure we might get into this later, but um, 
I was looking at a lot of the stuff that he had done to see what was relevant over the most recent year. And not only does he have like a laundry list full of things, but he appears in a recent Amityville movie. He doesn't play the same character, but this movie, like, so, so this movie is kind of weird, right? Amityville 2, because it's called Amityville 2. Everybody says it's a sequel. When we get into it, we realize, well, it's kind of a prequel. It's, it's reliving the story that we heard for the first one, but it takes its liberties to give us a full fledged out movie. And we talked about how the original Amityville horror was based on the book, right? Well, there was also an Amityville 2 book, but that's not this movie. This movie is based oh, okay. on a different book called Amityville Murders. Yeah. And in 2018, there's a movie called Amityville Murders, which Burt Young is in, and so is Diane Franklin, who plays Trisha in this. Oh, so I wow. thought it was really cool that they brought two people from this movie to be in another Amityville. I'm like, oh, man, I got this is one sequel I haven't seen yet. I think it's like 2018. Like, it's not that old. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll def- definitely have to check that one out. Um no, it's interesting that you talk about Amityville 2, the novelization or the novel, how it's a different story. Now I'm going to have to like seek that out because that's interesting to me. Yeah, apparently there's quite a bit of those uh, Amityville books that some of the movies reflect and some don't. And I think once they hit that part four where they do like the garage sale and all the items of Amityville get split up and make different stories, which still to me is a genius idea for marketing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh, man, I just. If only I read more, I would totally read these books. I kind of sound like Paranormal Pat over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't read as much as I'm older now. I listen to a lot of audio books and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, so so from the very beginning, you know, in this movie, we really, um, we really get that feeling that this family is dysfunctional. You know, even from the first scene where the dad is pulling up, the family's pulling up, and then Sonny pulls up, and you, you kind of see, well. Even before that, like when the kids are down by the the water by the lake, he's like, you know, telling his kids to stay away from the lake, and it's like, do you hear me? And they're like, yes, you know. He makes them say yes, sir, you know, yeah. kind of like a, a military kind of thing. And then whenever Sonny pulls up, he really gets on to Sonny for being late or whatever. Well, and Andy, the the dude is like five minutes late. Like he he is yeah. not <laughs> far behind, but the yeah. dad loves to rag on him. And it, it makes me think that this dad like had some kind of military background or something like that. And mm-hmm. I've I've known dads like that in the past, and they really have a thing for. And I, I don't want to say all military dads are like this. I, I'm not. I don't want to paint with broad strokes here, but there's not a trope for it. But it, yeah, I had the same vibe, dude. So I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, it's interesting. I I was curious about the because this story is based on the DeFeo murders, even though. The family has a different name in the movie. I think that was for legal reasons. Uh, so I was just kind of doing a quick like read up on the the DeFeo murders. And it's interesting, like uh, you know, Sonny, uh, he's he plays he's the part of Ronnie DeFeo is Ronnie DeFeo Jr., which is the guy that killed his family. Um, but it's interesting he pulls up in that convertible, that car, and if you read the the actual historical story behind the the movie, the parents would give. Uh, the son like gifts because he was always getting into trouble at school and things like that. And so they would try to give him gifts to kind of bribe him into being good. And so it's interesting that they had him driving up in that Camaro, that kind of like sporty car. And he's Mm -hmm. like talking about how he raced that guy at the the traffic light. So I think that was kind of a cool touch. It kind of, it kind of uh, puts in some of that, some of the facts from the actual story into this movie. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it kind of makes me wish I acted up more as a kid. Maybe I would have got a car. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, my parents would have just grounded me. Just yeah, but I, I think I was too. I, I guess I was. I, I don't know. I, I did act up as a kid, but uh, it didn't take much to kind of put me back in line, really. But uh, Andy, you've already spilled the beans, and, and I need to go ahead and say that right here um, for anybody out there that is a new listener to us. One, we welcome you to the World of Horror podcast. But two, you know, we've mentioned on our Uh, original intro episode that we've been podcasting together for a few years on different shows and stuff. Andy and I covered the original Amityville Horror on the other podcast that I do, which is more of my sci-fi, which I know is kind of weird, but I'm going to take more of my horror and bring it over to here with Andy. We'll do it here and I'll take mine back to the sci-fi roots, but we covered the original Amityville Horror. And so on that episode, you can hear us talk about that movie in depth, as well as 
when Andy pretty much let the cat out of the bag that he was a good boy growing up, and the worst thing he ever did was hide horror movies under his bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we get this this first, like the first scene where we kind of know that something weird is going on with the house. You, you have the mer- movers moving the boxes in, into the house. And uh, so we, we move down to the basement. Um, they're moving some guns into the basement or something like that. And the guy puts it up against the wall of, the, of this closet and the wall actually moves. And he's like, hey, lady, you got a like an extra room or something, he says. And he's like, you want me to check it out? And it's like, well, that's kind of like uh, above and beyond what a mover, mover would normally do. <laughs> I think he would just be like, whatever, and move on and keep moving boxes. But this guy's like, hey, you want me to check this out? She's like, oh, sure. And, and so she gives him a flashlight and he kind of goes into this. Man, it's like this, like, there's, like, these stone pillars and arches and stuff. It's, like, it looks medieval or something. It's, like, wow. It's, like, that would be awesome to find some kind of, like, secret passageway in a house you just moved into. I don't know. Have you ever had any found anything like that in a house you lived in, Dave? Well, first, we don't have basements here. So um, the oh, coolest yeah. things that we have here would be, like, oh, a small door. Where does this go? And everybody knows it just goes into the attic. And there's, sad to say, I've never found anything cool in the attic. So, yeah. Yeah, there's this uh, the house that we lived in before where we're at now. It was like an older house, and it didn't have necessarily secret passageways, but it had like so like upstairs. It was basically before originally it was just like a one story house, but it had a big attic. And so what they did was they uh, finished off the attic and made it a couple more bedrooms up in the attic. And so there, there was like you said, there was like these small like half like these real short doors that just kind of went to these extra spaces and stuff. It was kind of cool, but you know, it's more just for like storage and stuff like that. But, uh, right. it kind of gives you that feel of like these, just seeing like a short, kind of like a short door and it just kind of looks weird and stuff. And, um, but yeah, so this is kind of a cool scene because, uh, you know, it's really gross. Though. There's like mud on the mud and whatever else on the, the, the ground. And we get those just flies like, back, man. Yeah, the flies are coming back, and just like stuff was like dropping on the guy, and I, I wouldn't have that guy like stayed in there far longer than I would have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things that this movie does really well is using the camera uh, as almost as like another character of the story um, with the POV shots that you get, and that really like adds to that's what really creates the suspense in this movie is you kind of you see the camera moving through the house and like like. So it's like some somebody's watching the, the characters, you know, we're like we're the audience, so we're watching the characters. But also when you get these, uh, it's like the camera is like possessed almost or something, you know, by by the presence of the house. And it starts like watching the people as they're doing things or like sneaking up on people. I think that's really cool. That really adds to a lot of the, the, the suspense of the movie. And uh, and also just like we see we see we don't see a lot of ghosts, but we see like just things moving on their own. And I think that's really, that's actually really spooky to me when you, when you just see things moving on their own, but you don't actually see what's causing it. That's really creepy to me. So yeah, I just wanted to comment. I love the, I love the cinematography in this movie. Um, I love the camera shots that we get, especially when it's like the ghost, like uh, following people around or like getting ready to like possess people, which we'll get into later. But uh, yeah, what'd you think about the camera work? Earlier, you were surprised that the director hadn't done more Jalo films, and this screamed Jalo to me. So I agreed. Like I was shocked that he hadn't, but if he ever did, like this was as close as it gets because all the POV work where we're used to seeing a serial killer, we're actually seeing the point of view of some demonic force, and it really they use the house really well because that house is really creepy, and I love the camera work just like you. But I gotta say, it even. It tosses another bone to the actors because there are long sequences, especially with Sonny, where they're like the only character being filmed for sometimes up to three minutes. And it's just him and the camera. And they really have to act as if they sense that camera is that force that's following them around. And even watching it now, I was really impressed. Yeah, one of the things I thought was kind of funny was, uh, you know, it's not it's not really funny, but it's like whenever the camera's first going through the house. And it does the old trick where it pulls the tablecloth out from under the dishes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was just like, man, I wish I, could, I always wish I could do that. You know, you know, you you always see like uh, in sitcoms where people try to do that and they like pull all the dishes off the table or whatever. But the uh, the Amityville ghost, he act, you know, it actually is able to pull the tablecloth off and it 
puts it over the uh, crucifix. I think that's kind of a cool scene, just where it's going through the house. But it's interesting how there's certain people in the house that are sensing trouble right away. Like, you've got Sonny. Sonny, he seems to really sense things like something's not quite right. And also the mother, she really kind of senses that as well. Like, something's kind of off. Well, especially when she's in the basement, you know, and and uh, somebody, like, touches her, you know. And um, I think that was a really cool scene. It, it reminds me a lot of the first one, because in the first one, the mom the wife, she was one of the first ones to get it. And we talked about maybe it was because she was as religious as she was. And in this movie, we find out that she is also religious in here because um, she goes to the church so much. So we'll get into it. She calls the priest out to the house, just like the first one. And so it's ironic how in this movie, you would have really assumed that the dad played by Burt Young, who is the like ultimate of assholes, would have been the one to be possessed, but it's almost like Satan or whatever we want to call it was like, nah, you're already doing your thing. You're good. But Sonny being a teenager was the most susceptible to it. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting how, you know, that, that kind of works. You know, you see that with the exorcist as well as, you know, the, the demon wants to possess something. It's almost like the ultimate perversion. You know, it wants to possess something that's like inherently innocent and good and turn it into something evil you know and, and like yeah the opposite so it's a it's always interesting how that works out um did you i i don't know about you but i was kind of noticing the uh the weather in this movie it kind of played a big part I, I don't think there was any scene where there was a sunny day outside i think every scene outside it was cloudy yeah and that was another thing i noticed too and it started with the movie poster. Like when I was looking at some of the artwork and uh, Neil Fraser graphics did one for us for this episode. And uh, he oh, depicted the rain on here. And that's something that going back and rewatching, I started to pay attention to the weather also. And dude, not only is there cloudy days, we get rainy days and even snow at some point. And I remember the first movie, the rain played a big part of the climax. Oh yeah, definitely. That's true. Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how that, how that, how they kind of, and, and you know, like you mentioned, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, as I kind of sit back and reflect, there's not a lot of exterior shots. And I think like it goes back to like the access they had to the original site. Uh, but the ones that we did get are cloudy and just kind of dreary. This movie just has kind of that dreary, bleak feeling to it. Andy, I love <laughs> that you said that some of the scenes reminded you of like the exorcist. Because to me, I think that's what really pulls this movie out for me so much, besides the fact that I wore it out as a kid, is um, this movie is Amityville meets The Exorcist. Like, they took a lot of pages from that book, maybe pun intended, <laughs> but I absolutely love how this movie is like two mashups of two different movies. And all the Haunted House stuff that we get is phenomenal. But we have this backstory going on with Sonny where he's getting possessed by this demonic force. And I always talked about how I personally love religion bent in horror. Like it just fascinates me the route they choose to go and stuff. Um, as one of the old Black Cat Shadow Talks, remember we did the exorcism chat. That was awesome. But um, yeah, man, I, I absolutely love the way that they're pulling pages from the exorcist in this movie because I feel like this movie could have ended – 30 minutes shorter and it would have been a perfectly good Amityville movie. But that extra 30 minutes of exorcist love that we get, I think really adds more flavor to it. Yeah. It's definitely one of the things I noticed too, like after the, you know, like you said, like the first hour, it's it's only like the first hour until you get to the murders. And I was surprised. I was like, man, it feels like we watched an hour and a half long movie, but it was only like an hour up when you get to the actual murders. And so it's like, okay, so I guess that makes sense that they would have something else, you know, like a third act or whatever. But it was just surprised me. I was like, wow, I, I didn't realize that there was just that short, like it's only an hour before we get to the actual murders. Um, it seemed like it seemed like the whole exorcism thing was like this really long, drawn out thing at the end. But it really the movie's only like an hour and 41 minutes long. So it's not that much longer than a normal movie. But uh, but no, it, it's the the third act is great. I, I think. It's like the exorcist on steroids, you know, like, like which, you know, because we get a lot more. I mean, you get you get some great effects. It's not better. Than, I don't I don't know if I would say that the effects are better than the exorcist, but I think they are pretty good. But you get a lot more like 
uh, there's a lot more action, I guess, is what I want to say. Because you have a lot more like, uh, you know, you kind of start the exorcism in the jail cell and you get some stuff happening there. And then and then you have the priest taking uh, Sonny out of the jail, like, you know, kind of uh, knocking out the police detective and taking him out to they try to take tries to take him to the church at first. And then Sonny freaks out, attacks him. And then there's like that big fire that that shows up and Sonny's disappears. I think that's really cool. And then uh, the priest knows that he's going to be back at the Amityville house. So that's just where he goes back to. And then you have the whole the whole uh, scene within the house, which is really good. Um, and I think that kind of reflects more on the exorcist, that that particular scene where they're in that room. And uh, the demon is conf- is making the priest like see his own sins, you know, so like that. I think that's really good. So I think they did it really. I think they did a really good job with the exorcism stuff. And I think it uh, it seems like it's kind of tacked on at the end, but I think it really adds something to the movie as a whole, though. It's it, you know, it's great in my opinion. Yeah, I think maybe for a first time viewer, they'll definitely feel more of the third act being something that was added on, almost like a J.J. Abrams script. <laughs> but um, I think once you know what you're getting into and you give it a rewatch, it flows pretty well because it's not like the possession, which is the subtitle of the film comes out of nowhere or only happens because it's like filtered throughout the movie it just progressively gets worse and those effects really are good i don't i I didn't look at the makeup on this i I doubt it was dick smith to be honest uh it'd be really cool if it was (laughs) but um everything from sunny's slow transformation to like his skin um like sucking inside like he's running out of breath where he gets possessed it's almost like he's getting raped by the demonic force like i know that's harsh to say but that's kind of what they're doing with this and you slowly see his face is like pulsating and bubbling like he gets like a jacked up haircut at one point looking like frankenstein (laughs) and um man just the end scene where his face is like cracking open and flapping open and we see like the inner demon inside dude that was just giving me some serious vibes of of some of the greatest 80s movies oh yeah for sure i mean uh and i was and i was actually looking up the special effects guy it's uh john caglione jr um and it's interesting uh so he actually studied under dick smith (laughs) there it is (laughs) yeah uh but the interesting thing was he did the makeup for dick tracy the dick tracy movie Oh, um, we've then we've talked about him before somewhere because exactly. Well, <gasps> was it yeah. Chud? Chud, yeah. Let's see here. I'm I'm looking it up now. Only a few episodes ago. Yeah, he was uh, the special makeup guy in Chud too. Yeah, Chud, not Chud too, but Chud as well. <laughs> <laughs> and that's awesome. yes, that's awesome. Uh, yes, we've connected so it. That makes sense. Um. With why we, yeah, I, I thought the special effects, I mean, you get that body horror thing going on, like you, like you said, with the, the stomach going in and out and like, and just like the, the pulsating, like bulges in his neck and his yeah. arm and stuff. It, so like, you, that's, and you think about this picture an egg, right? And you know, like a baby bird, when it pokes out, it beaks out and the egg kind of cracks. That's what was happening to his neck. Oh yeah. It was the, the, so cool. <laughs> Yeah, but then at the end there, yeah, when his face just like cracks apart and the demon comes out, that was really cool. And I think that must have been what the inspiration was for Amityville 3D, you know, when you actually get that demon that pops out of the pit in the basement. It seems like it's kind of the same demon. You know, it looks the same. That makes sense. Um, Man, talking about relative things to other Amityvilles, I loved how much, and though this isn't me like in real life, but in the movie, how much they really drive home the idea of kind of spitting in the Bible, so to speak, because there are scenes like when the mirror falls down, that happens during the dinner prayer scene. So anytime anything gets godly or Christian or anything like that, or Catholic actually for this movie, like when you talked about that sheet goes and covers the crucifix on the wall, we have to talk about the scene where the paintbrushes in the kid's bedroom yeah, so they paint. Do they do the painting of what? Is it? Isn't that like Jody? Like what we see from the first movie? It is. Yeah, so it's like the the painting of like the pig demon or whatever. But then it says dishonor thy father, and like it's it's weird. It's crazy because like you know the dad comes up, Bert Young, he comes up, and he automatically thinks it's his kids that did it. But it's like you know little kids like that. I don't think they would even know how to to say dishonor thy father. You know, right. it, it just doesn't seem like something that a kid would would uh 
with pain. But then he, but then this is another scene where you see that yes, he actually beats his kids, you know, and it's just, it's just crazy. And then like you get this whole thing where, and this is actually one of the scenes that uh, was inspired by actual events as well. So, uh, you know, the part, so the mom kind of freaks out because he hits the mom. So she like, she kind of gets her courage up and wants to fight back. And she's just like, I guess, but then it also makes it seem like that the house was kind of making him crazy too. I don't know. But even though the mom should have fought back and defended herself, she kind of, she does this, she attacks the dad. And then there's this whole physical altercation. And then Sonny comes up, he grabs the, the, the shotgun and he holds up to his dad's head. And that's where, um, in the, the real story of the DeFeo's, uh, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. He actually held the gun up to his dad's head during an altercation because the uh, Ron DeFeo was actually like this. He was a kind of you know he's like abusive and uh-huh. controlling dad. Well, anyway, so in the real story, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. He actually pulls the trigger when the gun's held up to his dad's head, but the trigger it the gun doesn't go off. So I thought that Oops. was that was interesting. Huh. Uh, but in the movie, he doesn't pull the trigger. He you know the mom takes the the rifle away from him. And she's kind of like, what is happening to us? Because so it almost makes it sound like this kind of outburst was irregular for them. But it seems like it was, I don't know, just from the behavior from the very beginning, it doesn't really surprise me. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It was dysfunctional at its best. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. So- and this, of course, Andy, this has her um, hop on the phone and call uh, Father Frank Adamski. Adamski? Yeah, Adamski, yeah. And um, – he comes to bless the house and that evil force is definitely in there and it destroys in one scene, the kitchen. And then of course, immediately the kids are in the kitchen. So they get blamed for it. And this is when we see the dad lashing out again. And the priest is, he tries to intervene, but the dad, the dad is like pulling no punches to the priest. He's just basically like, Hey, you don't worry about it. You do you and I'll do me. And then of course the priest is like, I can't stay here for this. And he goes to leave and he's like, I'll come back in another time. Maybe your husband and I can become friends in the future, but it ain't happening now. And when he gets out to his car, the passenger door is open and we see that there's a Bible there and it's been shredded to pieces. Oh yeah. That was, that was, uh, that was interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, just, and it's also interesting to see the interactions between the priest and Sonny too, you know, cause you know, I don't know, just, uh, you, you know, he, and this was actually before the, I think this was, was this actually was this before the possession scene or after? The one where he's in his bedroom? Uh no, the one where like the priest first comes to the house and oh, the um, kitchen gets messed up. I think, I think it's this it, is before. Yeah. Because um yeah, the priest goes to leave and Sonny's just like holding the door open already, like, see you later, priest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um but no, it was a good scene. It just kind of further shows kind of like you know, it, they really do a good job of showing how dysfunctional this family is and and how, like, the dad doesn't really care who knows what's going on. He's just he's going to do what he's going to do to control his family or keep his family in line, basically. Let's see. Well, this is when Dolores um, basically she's like, this is the last straw. And she tells Anthony, who's played by Burt Young, that she's going to leave him. Like, if this is how it's going to be, she's out of here. And the only way she's willing to stay is if he will go with her, they go to the church, and he would apologize to the priest. And so they all get together to go leave, except Sonny. He stays home, and he says, you know, he doesn't feel good or whatever, and this is whenever he gets possessed. Oh, that's right, yeah. And this scene is really cool because this is where you get the, uh, you know, he goes down to the basement, and he find he, I guess they he did maybe he didn't know about the secret room. I don't know. Right. And so he's he's kind of discovering for the first time, and this is where we get that camera POV that just like swoops out of the base out of that basement room, and it's kind of like and he sees something but we don't see what he sees, and he's like running from the camera. I think that's really cool. And you get that shot where the camera goes from behind him, it goes over his head, and it goes down in front of him, but like upside down. I love that shot. It's like so. I, I it makes me wonder how they did that. I'm sure they had some kind of dolly or rig that they were able to do that but it's just really inventive i really like the camera work for sure man and it it really puts us in his shoes for his entire possession sequence we go all around that whole house and they do so good because with the idea of it coming out of that little basement trap door like the camera is pivoted low so we get a whole bunch of like low shots and then we see it kind of like almost like lounging out at him 
You know what I mean? And that's when he reacts like he's catching something. And then we get so many shots where it's like spiraling in 360. So I'll tell anybody out there, uh, much like my love Julie, who I forgot to tell, um, if you get motion sickness, like you can't watch some of these sequences, dude. She was watching it. <laughs> and there was times where she's like, I can't look at this. Oh, wow. I had to tell her when it was over because they definitely they take their liberties with that dolly shot, man. And I'm like you. I had forgot about that scene whenever it's like behind him and then it creeps up and over and then it goes down in front. And then for like an entire 10 second scene, he's just upside down. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned that the possession scene. It was kind of like like a rape scene almost. And I, I agree because, you know, the the camera kind of forces Sonny back onto the bed and so he's laying on the bed and that's when the possession scene happened and, and even the camera is kind of going like back and forth right so it's all it's like a it's very much like a, it's like, it's like penetration <laughs> type thing you know, yeah just, um but yeah i know that scene was was really effective because uh it was really really creepy but then like you know the family gets home and everything's like normal everything's fine um <laughs> Not for very long. <laughs> yeah, I thought one of the, one of the crazy scenes, one of the most disturbing scenes for me, was when the kids, were, the brother and sister, were playing with each other, but they were like acting like they were killing each other. They had the plastic bag over. Oh yeah, like, <laughs> that was in the kitchen scene. Yeah, like the was it the girl had the plastic bag over her brother's head? Yeah, for like like fifteen seconds. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was like, like oh gosh. It's like, geez, and these kids are like, where well, did they even- see that from? If you remember earlier at the dinner table, um, the son, I forgot his name. It was um, Brent. Yeah, the kids are Erica and Brent. Brent pulls a knife out, and he's acting like he's stabbing her. And so I'm just (laughs) like, man, they start young in this family. Yeah, well, I think think one of them mentions, like, I'm killing you like in the movies. So they must have seen some kind of movie where somebody was suffocated with a plastic bag or something. Black Christmas. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Interesting, yeah. Who knows? Um, But, man... This scene, I'm with you. Um, the, the one that we're leading up to is probably the most infamous scene in the film, at least for a lot of people, because it's our incestuous scene between Sonny and Trisha. Yeah, it's like it almost begs the question is kind of why did they include this in the movie? And I guess maybe it's just I guess it's just another thing that kind of adds to the perversion of the family, kind of like the. You know, it's, it's like a, what this is what a demon would want to do. Like it, it wants to like experience like a demon doesn't have a physical body of its own. So it, it, once it's inside of a body, it wants to experience all of the uh, like the perverse pleasures that it kind of seeks after. And so this is kind of like but then it also is working to destroy the family at the same time. So it's kind of like this is kind of like the ultimate act to like kind of drive this family apart. But it's interesting, like. I don't know, like so after so yeah we get the we get the scene you know where it's just like it's really uncomfortable between the brother and sister Sonny and uh, the his Trisha oh, Trisha yeah but then like uh, afterwards we get a scene where it's like Sonny's birthday party and Trisha approaches him and she's like do you feel guilty she's and she's like I don't you know I thought that was really interesting like wow she said that well and this is where I'm kind of torn because the whole movie you kind of get vibes. And you're like, eh, maybe they're just playing it that way. Even Julie, she was like, before we even got this far, she's like, so are they boyfriend or girlfriend? And I'm like, no, they're brother and sister. She's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I just wait. <laughs> and we get yeah. that perverse sequence. And I also think everything you said, plus the extra factor of just, again, throwing it in the face of the Bible with incestual relations being a big, I mean, like, it's like a sin times two, if that's even a, a thing. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the sequence at the birthday. Okay, here's the thing. Sonny is possessed. We we can't forgive him for the things he does, but at least we know why he's doing it. She is not possessed. What is going through her mind this entire movie? So much so, like you said, she admits that she doesn't even feel bad about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, yeah, right after he's possessed, this is kind of like the first thing that he does is, is have sex with his sister. And it's just like... Check it off the you, list. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, man, this must be like, yeah. Anyway, but anyway, um, I don't know. I, yeah, I just I feel we're talking about it. Even I'm just like, Ugh. but uh, well, and, and I'll I'll tell you, dude. Um, when I was reading in the trivia on this, did you know that 
it was intended to be a much more graphic and longer scene and they had to cut it down. Like originally the director said that the only reason they filmed this scene was to piss people off. And I think just hearing you (laughs) talk about like, I think they did great with that. Like this is going to disturb everybody. Right. And the actress who played Trisha, Diane, she said it was easy to film because she doesn't have a brother. So she was like, "Eh, I'm just acting. Oh, okay. That makes sense. She's like, I can see how it bothers everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree. Like even before the possession, they still had kind of an uncomfortable relationship. I feel like it was kind of just touchy, like, kind of hands on. Yeah, yeah, flirtatious. Um, I guess we could say. Yeah, it was. It was, it was weird. You know what? What else is is kind of crazy is she tells him that she doesn't feel bad about it, but we get a scene where she goes to the church to confess in the booth to the priest who just so happens to be our main priest in the movie still. So he knows who she is and she doesn't say Sonny. She just says my friend, but she also says he did it to hurt God. Yeah. So that, that's definitely an interesting scene that to put in there as well. It's almost like, like she kind of had guilt. Like she must have had some kind of guilt for it or something, but then it's almost like, like she can't admit it to Sonny though. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. I don't know. But, uh, there's probably a lot more to be unpacked there, but I, I don't. I'm not really too interested in getting into it anymore. <laughs> but uh, it's you know, it gets to the point where this priest he like he like doesn't even want to deal with the family anymore. He just kind of starts ignoring their phone calls. You know, it seems like like when she called, like him and the other priest are going to go camping, and uh, Trisha calls him, and he just like, he just kind of like so he says, "Forget, it, I'm not going to answer the phone." It's like he knows who's calling. But he doesn't really want to deal with it, I guess. He's and it reminds me of a lot of the Exorcist too, when that priest was having like nightmares and visions of what was happening. This priest was doing the same thing. Like you, like you said, he knew who was calling, and eventually it gets to a point where um, he starts to have nightmares over uh, what's actually happening in this movie. But we have to touch base on the scene where he actually he does finally go back to the house and bless it. And oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There's a crazy scene where. He does approach like he wants to go upstairs and the mom's like, you have to. Sonny's up there. He's like, oh, maybe I should leave him alone. She's like, no, 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 that's where that's he's not himself. You definitely need to go up there. And <laughs> yeah. he has an interaction with Sonny where Sonny he's like, I'm not gonna say he's hiding, but he's just kind of standing off in the corner behind a dresser on his own. And he doesn't show his physical uh, demonic self, but you can sense it that he's the rebellious teen but he really is rebelling against God. Like he doesn't want him, the priest to even be in his room. Um, but then the priest goes downstairs and the mom's like, can you bless my room father? And, she, and he goes in there to do it. And he has the thing it's called like, he calls it a sprinkler where he's dabbing the holy water. And she's like, Oh, can you do the bed too? And then he goes to yeah. do the bed. And Andy, we get this horrific scene of just a whole bunch of like the sprinklers spraying blood everywhere. Hey, yeah, that was, that was, a, that was pretty cool. Uh, just the effect, the blood effect and, and yeah, it was really freaky. So you know, the priest he's freaks out, and the and the of course the mom she's screaming. It's almost like, did she expect this to happen? Kind of thing. Like like is this is just kind of like another thing of confirmation to her that this house is not right. Something in this house isn't right. But yeah, it's interesting that she did ask to to bless her bed. And I think there's there, yeah there's definitely some kind of like is there some kind of like. Uh, I don't know. Like, so yeah, go ahead. I can fill in that void. You're, you're on the right track. So in the movie, there's a lot of background conversation about, I don't think mommy makes love to daddy no more type stuff, which is like, why would your kids be talking about that? I don't know, whatever that shows kind of the awkwardness that they have. And you often hear things in the background where it's like, Oh yeah, we went to church and then daddy took us uh, out for steak dinner and he tried to get mommy drunk, you know? And it's just like, what is he up to or whatever? But apparently there were some other things filmed and cut from the movie where the dad does rape the mom because she won't sleep with him anymore. And I think that's why she's like, can you bless the bed? Uh, okay. So that makes sense. Yeah. That, then that's kind of what I was wondering about. Like if that's kind of what they were, Alluding they were kind of hinting at that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everything that's happened and just the vis- visualization of, the sprinkler spraying blood because it is revealed like five seconds later to a cutscene that Sonny like is falling back on his bed and he's like laughing. He's playing the visual tricks on the priest. And I think we get a lot of that in part one also. But um, this is when he is convinced that there's something happening supernatural in the house. 
yeah, he approaches his uh, was that like a bishop or something like that, and asks if you know he could get it's like the a exorcism chancellor. Yeah, chancellor, and asks if he could get exorcism sanctioned by the Catholic Church, and you know the yeah you know, the chancellor's like, well, I'll I'll uh, I'll get back to you or something like that, you know. And that's that's one of the big differences we have is in the Exorcist film, they're like, um, you know, if you're gonna do that, you really have to be sure. Like some you have to get proof and all these in this movie, they were like they didn't want to believe him or help him. And later he even tries to go back to the church, it's like, Okay, I'm telling you, this is what's happening. And the Chancellor's like, Well, we think you just need to uh take some time off work and maybe just do nothing. And you can see right. at this point that the church isn't going to stand in and help, which means he can't legally do the exorcism. Yeah, exactly. So, so that that kind of like sets up where the father has to like just where the the priest has to just kind of be on his own. Another thing is um, we talk about visually how Sonny looks. We also got to talk about there are multiple times in this movie where he's listening to his Walkman and he's hearing the demonic voice in his headphones, which eventually tells him to kill the family. Yeah. Those, those things are pretty good too. That voice was really effective. I, it's like, wow, that's, that's really freaky. Anyway. Yeah. It's just, it's really, effective. I really like that voice is really scary, creepy. So then it, all this is building up to the actual murders, you know? And, and so the, the scene, you know, where the murders are taking place, of course, was it like storming outside? I can't remember now. I want to say that it was uh, mostly because we talked about the weather so much in this movie, but it's kind of crazy how the liberties they took with this. I mean, it definitely makes it more climatic and exciting because in the first Amityville, they kind of show a flashback scene and everybody was killed in their bed. Where in this one, we actually get some cat and mouse action. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's not just a straightforward, just him shooting everybody while they're asleep. Like, Everybody's basically awake, or well, at least the parents and the sister is. I think the two younger kids well, even are probably he, he wakes them up if they are asleep because he does chase them. Yeah, yeah, he does chase them. So, you know, of course, his parents are arguing. Like, you know, the mom and dad are arguing about you know, you know, not wanting to have sex and stuff like that. Um, and so that's when you know he walks in and blows his dad away. You know, shoots his mother, but then like the. Was it the the older sister Trish? Doesn't she sees the mom get shot, and then she runs off, and then that's when that's when we kind of get this kind of like cat and mouse kind of stuff going on. And during these scenes, like Sonny is really freaky looking. You know, the makeup on him is really well done. Um, you know, he's kind of got that that possessed look to him. You know, to his face. You know what? I think you're 100% right. I think it is storming because now that you say that, I think when he's walking through the house, it's dark. But then as lightning flashes, we get the glimpses of him because oh, yeah. after after Trisha sees the mom get murdered and she realizes she can't help the mom, she like just jumps over the mom's body and runs downstairs. And I think the girl has been killed at this point, but the little boy is still alive. And the little boy has come around the corner. She's at the foot of the stairs, and she's she thinks that – her brother is still upstairs with the gun. So she tells him, come here and then lightning flashes. And there's a really cool, dare I say, Michael Myers, just scene where his face is revealed that he's standing behind the little boy. And then he shoots him off screen. And I guess he drags away his body because that's the last that we see of uh, little Brent. Yeah, no, that was really, that was a really great scene. That was because, yeah, you see the kid hiding like in, kind of in the dark and then the lightning flashes and he's right there. The yeah. uh, Sonny is right behind him and his face is all, contorted you know demonic looking and stuff that's that was really cool yeah so then he ends up like killing everybody else or killing killing trish too the older sister the way andy that he does it is so kind of weird because he puts that gun like up to her face and it's almost like he's gonna put the barrel in her mouth in some sexual innuendo kind of way and then he puts it down her blouse and it kind of stops right there and it switches off and he shoots her and i'm just like where did he end up shooting her oh yeah wow yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, so, and of course, you know, the priest, he's on his camping trip with his buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so he wakes up, you know, he has a bad dream. He basically, like, has a premonition that this is, or, well, a premonition is when, it ha- when you see it before it happens, I guess. But but he's yeah, kind of he like was... having, yeah, he's having like a dream that this is actually happening. So he's like, oh, something's bad's happened to this family. And so he just feels the need to, he has to drive back to Amityville 
right then and there. And so they do, you know, of course, by the time they get to the house, it's over with uh, the police are there. They're taking bodies out of the house. And so we, we get the, we get the scene of him kind of doing the blessing on each body. And it's, it's kind of a, a moving scene because, you know, he opens up the bag and there's Trish and she's dead. And so it, it really hits him hard because he knows that Trish was coming to him for help because she was worried about Sonny and she was just worried about the things in the house and he didn't really help them. He feels like he, he let them him. down. Yeah. So it was really, <clears throat> it was a really good scene, you know, with him blessing the bodies as they're being taken out. Did you find it weird? Um, I definitely didn't think of this as a kid, but like Julie was pointing this out to me. She's like, why is he allowed on the crime scene? Like he's a priest. I, I get that much, but they're all letting him touch the whole crime scene, touch the victims and everything. I was just kind of like, man, you get a pass if you're a Catholic priest. Yeah, that for sure. He probably shouldn't have been touching the bodies, but also like he did notice the crucifix was like, was like thrown out the window and he went over to pick it up and like, Oh, Hey priest, don't touch that. That's, that's a, it's a crime right. scene or whatever they did. They did say something there. Um, well, after he had already <laughs> done everything yeah, else, but it, but... this is definitely when this becomes a different movie, right? Oh yeah. This is when we, this is like the beginning of the third act. Basically it's, it's, it's weird because it's this last act is, it's like a partially, it's like a courtroom mm-hmm. type thing, but that. then also, but then you get the possession thing too. Well, whenever, um, whenever he shows up and does everything we just said, we also see that Sonny's there and he's in handcuffs and he's like, I don't remember doing this. So that, that just further tells the priest that, yeah, this something is going on here. And, and I, I like the scenes. Like, so after you have like this, like brief scene in court where they're trying to Sonny's lawyers trying to say he was possessed, which I don't know why they just didn't go for like the insanity plea. I think that would have been better. That would have been more, maybe more successful than that. Than For a sure. plea of demonic possession, but uh, so we just get this brief scene in the courtroom, and of course the judge throws that out, that plea out. You know, says we're not going to take that because, you know, if if we let you say that you're demonically possessed, and every other criminal is going to say they're possessed by demons and they're they're not responsible for their actions. So, yeah. Can, real quick, can I say I I don't know if you caught this. If you didn't, you need to rewatch it. Sonny has the coolest looking lawyer I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh yeah. He, Dude, the guy, um, he looked like he came out of a straight 70s black exploitation, I'm going to get you sucker and beat you <laughs> while you watch kind of guy. Like yeah. this dude, he was a he was a big black guy, bald. He, ha- he was wearing sunglasses in the courtroom first off. Okay, who can get away with that? But he had this really thick, intimidating beard, and he had some swagger, dude. Like when I, I was just like, man, that's my kind of lawyer right there. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Um, you know, there in the, in the, in the historical story, like the actual story, there's, so the DeFeo family, they worked at a, uh, a use like a car dealership and there was actually, they actually had supposedly had some ties with the mafia. I don't know. Oh, wow. But, yeah. So I don't know if that really, had, you know, and the, cause that's what originally what Ronnie DeFeo's story was, was that his family was murdered by the mafia. Whoa. So, but anyway, so I don't know how that plays into the, the, the lawyer or whatever, but it's just like, <laughs> but, uh, I could see that <laughs> the mafia murders his family and then it's like, uh, the devil did it. Yeah. Yeah. The devil did it. <laughs> Who's going to prosecute the devil. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. So then we get these scenes, uh, in the jail cell where, uh, they let the priest come in and talk to Sonny and he's trying to. He he actually tries to start performing the exorcism right there in the jail cell, and, and he just can't. You know, it's just it's just not going to happen, I guess, because I don't know. I you know, he's just not able to do the exorcism there in the jail cell for whatever reason. Sonny even tells him like the church doesn't back you, therefore it's a void. It doesn't count. And I think a lot of it too is that he still feels like it's on Sonny's terms, like the jail cell. Like he has to do it in the church. Oh, that's true. That that makes sense. Yeah, this so this brings us to our exorcism scene where you know it it takes place back at the Amityville house uh, because the priest originally tries to take Sonny back to the church uh, when he like he basically like kidnaps Sonny out of takes him out through a, a back door um, and he tries to take him to the church but then Sonny attacks him and then uh, 
you know, they get separated by this magical fire that kind of appears out of nowhere. And then Sunny disappears. And so then, yeah, this is when everything goes back to the Amityville house. The priest walks in. There's like, was it like blood running down the walls of the basement? Yeah, a callback to the original again. Yeah. So then he finds Sonny in the upstairs bedroom. And yeah, this is where we get the exorcism scene. And, and it kind of, it really kind of mirrors the, uh, like the final scene of the exorcism where, uh, where you just have Father Damien confronting uh, Pazuzu and you kind of get that back and forth as the same, you know, so that's what you get in this movie too, where the demon is, is actually makes his, makes his face look like Trish, the daughter mm-hmm. or the sister. And says, you know, Oh, priest, you wanted to have sex with Trisha, you know, while she was in the confessional and kind of turning it back around on the priest, making the priest feel guilty or whatever, you know, he calls him the Lord of lies and stuff. And I, <laughs> I love what he does, Andy. Like, he saves the boy, right? Essentially, he saves Sonny. But he also damns himself because the demon does jump into his body. And we see now that the priest, his he has slight contortion and bubbling welts in his veins are pulsating and everything. Um, the only thing we don't see is he doesn't jump out the window, <laughs> you know, much like the other uh, The Exorcist film. But it just kind of sucks this has to happen because um, Father Adamski was a really cool character. And even though maybe his undoing was the fact that he didn't stay with them and help them the whole time that he neglected it, maybe that was his sin or whatever. And maybe he did have those um, thoughts about Trish or, or whatever, but it still sucks to see one of our characters we were kind of rooting for that was going to save the day that really believed in oh, the only one that believed that Sonny was possessed um, have to go down this way. Yeah, well, and the ending was a little confusing, or it, they left it really ambiguous. Like, because it shows the other priest taking Sonny out of the house, and the police, you know, arresting him again. But then you you never really go back into the house. Like, the police don't even, I guess they don't even search for the for Father Adamski. I don't know. Like, they don't even go back in the house. It seems like. Yeah, and, I think it's left to believe like his whereabouts were unknown, which means like the evil escapes, so to speak. Oh, okay. Um, but but as you mentioned, remember the opening shot was like the for sale sign in the house and everything. Uh, isn't this like revisiting that shot? Like now the house is for sale. Like hey, this yeah. is kind of our opening clip. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. Yeah. Can I tell you something about um, the other priest? It was just Father Tom. That was his friend. He was camping with. That uh-huh. dude has some horror cred. Yeah, it's it's Andrew Prine. Yeah. Yeah. So did you look him up? Um, I I'm familiar with with him from like, he's been in a lot of seventies horror. Yeah. Um, he was in the town that dreaded sundown. Yes. Um, he was in, and he's been in some, I don't remember everything, but I know he's been in some other, like more like kind of schlocky B B movie type, like a uh, grindhouse type stuff. Yeah. Like he was, dude, in, he was yeah. in an episode I covered on podcast from another world. He's from grizzly. Oh, that's right. He was he's like, Dan. The, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But dude, I, I'm going to throw this at you for, for your love. He's in a movie in a movie with Sybil Danning. Oh, really? What's yeah, you have to track it down. It's called "They're Playing with Fire." So, that oh, sounds you know enticing. what? That sounds familiar. I think I've actually seen that. You probably have, <laughs> because well, and I think the reason why I saw it was because I was like back in the mid two thousands, I was like on this quest to see every eighties slasher movie I could get my hands on, and I think for some reason that movie popped up. And I think I don't think it's like a like a I think there's elements there's like a mass killer in part of it I think but I think for the most part it's not like a a straight slasher movie sure. I don't know but but I think I've seen it but it's like I said it was probably like 2005 or something like that so I probably definitely would have to rewatch that one. I was kind of shocked to find out that uh, Jack Magner who played Sonny in this who did a great job really hadn't done it he was in this and Firestarter and that was it. Oh, cool. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know he was in Firestarter. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, too. He could have gone on to have um, a pretty prolific acting career, in my opinion, especially with a cult classic like this, because I would consider this a cult classic. It may have not done too well. It made like over $12 million in the box office, but I think it definitely, VHS sells, it definitely has to have some sort of cult following by now. But um, yeah, maybe he went on to be a lawyer or something. Maybe he just got out of acting, but uh, at least this one's you know in his library. 
Yeah, you may not consider this a Christmas movie, but I think I have just made it a tradition now to watch this at Christmas every year. Yeah, for sure, man. This is one of those, it, you know, or at least maybe like uh, Thanksgiving if you want to watch like family, like or not family movies, but movies about like families getting together or whatever and kind of craziness happening. Um, because you don't really have many Thanksgiving horror movies either. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, definitely Christmas, it would work too, I guess, you know. So yeah, guys, this this may be uh, not a traditional Christmas episode, but this is our Christmas episode for the month. So hope you guys enjoyed it. We want to thank everybody for tuning into this podcast. We're just kind of getting off the ground here, and I uh, appreciate everybody that's kind of checking it out and giving us a chance. And uh, Dave, uh, tell people where they can uh, keep up with what's going on with you. If you guys want to find me, you're going to find me on Twitter at Dave underscore Phantom, covering everything from horror, sci-fi, classic movies, and uh, something relevant to this time of the year, Christmas stuff. So don't hesitate to give me a shout-out. I'll do the same for you. Give me a follow. I'll give you a follow. If you got a podcast out there, you want me to check it out, I'd love to check it out. Uh, Andy and I both are active podcast producers and listeners. So if anybody ever wants to uh, you know, throw down and do some, some cross-promotion, uh, just give us a shout. Yeah, for sure. It was... Always love, uh, you know, sh- you know, spreading the love between different podcasts, and uh, definitely want to support other podcasts out there that we enjoy. So, uh, if you want to keep up with g- what's going on with me uh, on Twitter, I'm at Black Hat Podcast, and on Instagram, I'm at Andy Ustry. Um, I'm not a very, I don't post a ton, but um, I'll definitely post whenever new episodes are up, so you can keep track of that on there. And you've been listening to the world of horror.